0: A Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised.
1: On September 29th, 1974, the Chicago Tribune publishes its first story in a series that will change American politics for decades.
0: The writer, George Bliss, is a veteran reporter known for his scoops. But even he didn't know how big this story would be.
1: The story centers around a woman who used 27 names, 31 addresses, and a massive wardrobe of wigs to steal hundreds of thousands of dollars in welfare money. Her real name is Martha Miller, but he calls her the Welfare Queen.
0: Her crimes become a legend bigger than herself. Martha Miller isn't just committing welfare fraud. Politicians are eager to claim she is everything that is corrupt about the social safety net. The term
1: welfare queen becomes the theoretical boogeyman of social programs. It's a two-word weapon against Social Security, food stamps, and any policy that helps the poorest and most marginalized Americans.
0: But as important as these issues are, the fact that they're tied to Martha Miller's crimes just doesn't make sense.
1: Because her story is not about corruption. It's about fraud, con artistry, and a woman who would do anything to maintain the lifestyle she believes she
0: deserves. What that welfare queen stereotype obscures is that Martha Miller didn't just scam the government. She scammed nearly everyone she met. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime
2: of a Lifetime. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: As much as I'd like to start this story with, it all began and blah, 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 it's really hard to say exactly when it began.
0: And what is actually so notable about the story is the chaos, right? There's so many crimes on so many different levels that it, it actually boggles the mind that it went unnoticed for so many years. So we're just going to jump
1: right on in when things start to finally go off the rails. We're going to start with the woman named Connie Walker or Dr. Shvolia. Yes, that's her name, Dr. Shvolia, as she's known in Chicago. It's 1971, and Dr. Schfolia begins putting ads in Chicago's leading black newspaper. It's called the Chicago Defender, and she advertises herself as the daughter of a spiritual advisor called the Great Black Herman, who was actually Mm. a traveling magician back in the 1920s.
0: Dr. Schfolia is a mystic, actually, and she dresses up in flowing black robes and communes with the spirits on behalf of her clients for what I think is a very reasonable hundred dollars a session. Sounds like a steal. I mean how much literally, maybe a steal. <laughs> in 1971, how much was hundred dollars, Quinn? Three billion? Three three billion. Three trillion. Well, you know, if you're charging $100 a session, I gotta say, it's a pretty good set design budget. And she has built up some ambiance in this room. She's decorated it with masks, dead birds, a ton of paper currency just, I guess, (laughs) stuck to the walls. And, of course, candles everywhere. This sounds like a recipe for a house fire.
1: I hope there are also fire extinguishers on hand. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) What she's offering along with this ambiance is information on when and how your loved ones will die. Quinn, how much would you pay for that service?
0: Truly, I would pay somebody not to tell me that. It seems like it would spark <laughs> a lot of anxiety. I don't want to well, know, but you we don't
1: anymore. We don't need any more sparks in that room. <laughs> it's all ablaze. <laughs>
0: But I'm not the I'm I'm probably a standalone as one of the only people that wouldn't want to know that information. Certainly, a lot of people do. One of them is this older woman, Francie Baker, and she sees this ad. She's into it. She heads to Doctor Schfolia seeking some guidance, and they strike up an instant connection. Francie really trusts her. She believes in the power of Doctor Schfolia. Francie and Dr. Schfolia have
1: been communing with one another for years. And one day in October of 1971, Dr. Schfolia calls Francie out of the blue and tells her that Francie's nephew, this guy Charles Bailey, is in grave danger. And she has this feeling that he won't live much longer. Now, Francie is getting this call out of the blue, and it's not what you want to hear. And she's majorly freaked out by this. She believes this woman— Charles is only nineteen years old, and she just saw him.
0: Dr. Schfolia has actually met Charles before. A few years ago, he came into a reading with his aunt Francie, and they met each other. So Dr. Schfolia to Francie is like, you know what? You you better let me talk to him. Uh, by the way, by the way, have you seen him today? Oh, you have. Uh, what uh, what was he wearing? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, give me his number, and um, we're gonna get this imminent death thing just sorted straight away. And after that, Doctor Schfolia calls Charles, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I, I remember you. That psychic from a few years ago. What's up?" And she tells him, "Well, someone in your family is plotting your demise."
1: And at first, he's like, "Absolutely not! How? I don't believe you. What is going on? You're not. I'm not under your thumb like my aunt Francie." But then she proceeds to describe what he is wearing that day to a T shirt. (laughs) Just kidding. To a T, like exactly (laughs) what he's wearing. And he's like, all right, I guess that's all it takes. I believe you. So he doesn't know, obviously, that his Aunt Francie had told her what he was wearing that day. So – He's into it. Um, and he starts to take her very seriously. And he's like, what do I do? And so Dr. Schfolia, who, by the way, I love how often we're saying this name, Dr. Schfolia, Dr. Schfolia tells him that he must come with her if he wants to live.
0: Come with me if you want to come with me.
1: We're going to fast forward a month later to November 1971 and enters a gold-toothed young woman with a baby in her arms, and she's running through the pouring rain. Her name is Connie Green, and she is on her way to the Van Buren County Department of Social Services in Michigan. This office is in a basement. There are cells lining the wall, which is relics of a time when mentally ill people were held there against their will. And on rainy days like this one, water drips through the overhead lights. It sounds like
0: a haunted house. It sounds so so scary. scary. What a terrible place for an office.
1: Don't enter the building. It's like me shouting, don't go in there. Don't go in
0: there. Yeah, it's not a pretty picture, but uh, neither are the lives of the people who come here, right? Seeking assistance. They've usually fallen on hard times. And Connie Green's story is one of the saddest of the day. She sits down in front of the social worker, Jesse Dinkins, and explains that she is taking care of seven children all by herself. Seven-year-old twins, six-year-old triplets, and two more boys, including the one she has with her, little Hosa Womack. She calls him her beautiful black baby, but explains that the baby's dad did not agree with this moniker. He was actually a white man who ran out on her because Hosa was, quote, a disgrace to the white race.
1: It's a horrible story. Jesse Dinkins is startled by it, and it's not lost on her that this baby looks like hers, and this actually could be her kid. And Connie is sitting there. She's all alone. She's left to care for her seven kids, all of which are under the age of eight. It's just
0: tragic. So even though she sees a lot of stuff like this and she works in this horrible office, Jesse Dinkins... Is still moved by this story. And right away, she hands Connie $81 in food stamps and promises her another $236 every two weeks. Connie thanks Jesse and leaves the office, seemingly pretty relieved that someone's there to help her. She's not alone.
1: But even after she's gone, Jesse can't get Connie's story out of her head. It's just so sad bothers her and it draws attention from the other social workers in the office too. It's that sad and tragic. And yet none of them noticed a glaring mistake on the welfare forms Connie Green filled out. It's a small, but frankly medically miraculous detail that should have instantly gotten flagged. The set of twins and the set of triplets, they were born within five months of each other. I'm no doctor. I just play one in a podcast. But that doesn't seem right.
0: Let's take you back to Chicago. Dr. Schfolia is leading Charles Bailey into her unassuming two-story brick house on 78th Street. She locks the door behind him saying, now you're safe. And inside this house... I'm so sorry, Quinn.
1: (sighs) Quinn, I just have to interrupt. If someone made me enter a house and locked it after me and said... Now you're safe. Now you're safe. I don't
0: think I'd feel safe. I don't think I'd feel safe.
1: Okay, that's all I want to (laughs) say. Noted. (laughs) So creepy.
0: (laughs) Inside this house, though, it is like a palace. It is not creepy at all. There's fancy furniture. There's really nice thick carpets. And um, not only that, Dr. Shvoli is actually paying Charles to be there. She starts forking over $100 bills right away like they're nothing to her. And she wants him to stay
1: there as her assistant. And with all the cash she's just handing over, he's pretty happy to agree. Not only is he safe, he's now in the money. He cooks her meals. He cleans her house. He takes care of her three kids. And he just has to keep his mouth shut. It doesn't take Charles Long, though, to notice that Dr. Schfolia's story about who she is and what she does just wouldn't you believe it isn't quite adding up. I guess that's to be expected when you're dealing with
0: fortune tellers. Well, a few things do catch his attention right away. For one, he hears Dr. Schfolia answer to the name Dr. Huyon and Connie Walker, and she has a closet full of checks with a bunch of different names on them. Charles obviously knows better than to ask her about this. He's not trying to, I guess, bite the hand that feeds him. Um, Not to mention, her personality is sort of volatile. She is pretty unpredictable. She does this thing where she hides around corners or in closets and then just jumps on Charles when he least suspects it. And she'll just, like, wrestle with him and laugh maniacally. And then the next day, she'll be really... Mean and edgy and like screaming at him. It's very Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. She's flipping on a dime, and he never really knows what kind of mood she's gonna be in or what to expect.
1: And this is really scary because he's getting money from her, right? He needs her in this moment to he needs to be. And it's literally
0: scary. She's like boo, (laughs) boo, like jumping out at him all the time. Like that's actually very scary. There
1: is like physical, psychological physical and psychological scares happening right now. In terms of haunted house, I would rate this high, very high on the list, okay? And he's doing his very best to like stay on her good side, right? Because if he got on her bad side, he's not going to get more $100 bills.
0: But there is another thing that strikes him as strange, which is that Dr. Shvolia has a husband. This guy comes by for three days every weekend, but he doesn't look anything like the kids. One of her kids is clearly white, and her husband is Black, Charles always assumed Dr. Shvolia was some combination of white, Italian, and Roma, and that her kids were the same. But then one day, Dr. Shvolia
1: comes home with a new baby in her arms. It's a really cute little Black baby boy, but she hasn't been pregnant. And she doesn't explain where this kid came from. He's just added to the family. No questions asked, no answers given. He's now a member of the family. No,
0: no. I and mean, Charles knows better than to ask questions or make accusations or cause trouble. But you know what? Here's the thing. Whether you like it or not, Charles, trouble's a-coming.
1: Around December 1971, Dr. Schfolia shouts down some orders at Charles from upstairs. You know, I don't know if you've lived in a house with two floors. You get it. My mom used to do it all the time. And he ignores her. So she yells at him again, and this time
0: he yells back. Now you've done it. The house goes quiet. Charles doesn't really think uh, anything of this interaction necessarily, but after 20 minutes go by, Dr. Shfolia turns up right next to him, pressing a pistol into his neck, and he just freezes right there in place. She says to him, I'll blow your motherfucking brains out if you ever talk to me like that. I think this is shocking to him. I don't think she's ever spoken to him this way, even though he's seen uh, Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde has never um, been so aggressive. So the two sort of separate for the moment being, and I then she kind of comes back to him later, and he's thinking, okay, this is where she's going to apologize for how out of the blue, how wackadoo that was. But no, she kind of doubles down, actually, and tells him, the only way you're leaving... Is in a box.
1: That's a far cry from when she told him he was safe
0: now <laughs>
1: when he first entered the home.
0: Things have changed. The temperature has changed. I mean, that's a lot, right? That's
1: a lot. That is a huge escalation. Less than a month later, Dr. Shfolia asks Charles to move to her house in Michigan. And at this point, he's scared. He just
0: obeys her. Yikes. I mean, if it were me, I'd go box shopping. On February 13th, 1972, Charles has now been living in Dr. Schfolia's Michigan house for a month. Like we said earlier, he's earning his keep there, he's cooking, he's cleaning, he's taking care of the kids. He is at this point even sleeping in the same bed as she is, at her
1: request. I just want to point out that February 13th is Valentine's Day, so that's how they celebrated. <laughs> <laughs> So on Valentine's Day, on this very special day, while he's home alone, he hears a knock at the door. It's a Michigan State trooper, and he is looking for Dr. Schfolia. That much is very clear, but he doesn't mention the name Dr. Schfolia. He's calling her by other names and describing how she looks. Some of the names Charles recognizes, but others, who? He's never heard these names before.
0: And despite there being some uh, friction, I guess you might say, Charles is not eager to rat her out, even if he's kind of being held hostage there. But he does manage to tell them enough to get them very interested, so then they dig deeper. They start to interview neighbors who know Dr. sfolia by even more names, and social workers who have heard sob stories about Connie Green and her seven kids. Could you
1: imagine being like I think we have this con woman Dr. Shfolia and then as soon as you start to dig deeper it's like there's more names more mysteries more questions they're like like, I think
0: we have this con woman Connie she goes by and then they like like, oh "Oh, I should have seen it coming Yeah, Connie the con woman. Connie the con woman. We should
1: have known. But it's like at this point, they just are like collecting puzzle pieces. It's like they thought this was a 300-piece puzzle. This is a 2,000-piece puzzle at the very least. So here they are. They don't know how to put these pieces together. But the one thing they do feel quite certain about is that they've got a big old criminal on their hands.
0: They feel even more confident in her guilt when they return to arrest her. And she's there packing up, getting her bags ready to flee the Michigan home for Chicago.
1: At this point, they're not really sure what name they should put in for her charges because they actually don't know her real name at this point. But they settle on Connie Green, con woman Connie Green. And she's charged with felony welfare fraud and faces a sentence of up to four years in prison.
0: Now, the judge sets her bond at $10,000 because he believes she is a flight risk. but. She gets the help of a powerful civil rights attorney, and the bail is lowered to $1,000. So she's able to pay her way out. And you can probably guess that Connie never shows up to court again. She flees the state. Do you think she paid his lawyer fee? Oh, my God. She Poor ran out guy. on the fee, too. Poor <laughs> Poor thing. He had to go to her house <laughs> and collect it off the wall. He was like, oh, there's all this cash stapled to the wall. I'm going to have to get my lawyer's fee here. What do you make of Charles and Connie uh Charles and Dr. Shvulia, uh sharing a bed is I, it ro- I, like is this romantic is this sexual i can't tell
1: oh I can't tell that either. I think she has so much power over Charles in this moment, both financial and emotional control over this person, that he will do anything she asks of him. Because I think there's a fear of the money pit drying up and also, like, what she could do for him. I think it's coercion. Whether it's monetary or emotional abuse, it feels coercive. Right? Definitely. I mean, I was or do just you think he's, if
0: you thought they were not? Convinced. Or do you think he's
1: into her? <laughs> do we know? I don't know if I can say how much Charles is into her. Listen, she dresses well. She loves those hats. She's got some furs. I mean, really strong hide and seek game. Really great hide and seek game. Really good hide and seek. Also very good at paperwork. I would say her skills, <laughs> paperwork, <laughs> and men. You know how men love that. Men. I don't think you realize because you're married, but as a single woman, I want to confirm with you, men go crazy when I tell them I'm decent at paperwork. So I can't even imagine how that <laughs> – that's what men want. Men want a woman who is good at paperwork. And that's maybe what Charles sees in Connie, Dr. Shfolia, whoever the hell this woman is. Two and a half years go by, and on August 8th, 1974, Detective Jack Sherwin responds to a burglary report on South Clyde Avenue in Chicago. He's a seasoned policeman of over 12 years and he's now well into his third year as a detective.
0: And there was a ton of thefts, robberies, burglaries in Chicago in 1974. I mean, nearly 200,000 of them. So it would be really hard for like a single incident to stand out in Detective Sherwin's mind. But this one does. There is something about it he can't put his finger on.
1: He rolls up to this unassuming six-unit apartment building, and he's led inside by a short 30-something gold-toothed woman. She introduces herself as Linda Taylor. She tells him that $8,000 worth of jewelry and furniture have been stolen from her apartment. But when he walks into her apartment, everything seems really tidy and in exactly the right place.
0: Detective Sherwin asks, well, what was stolen? And Linda rattles off this hysterical list. A green refrigerator, a gold stove, Mm. hospital end tables. (gasps) Those are expensive. A grandfather clock, two large Chinese lamps, large elephant figurines, a pair of speakers, I don't know, a partridge in a pear tree. She's going on and on. She informs him that all these items that were stolen were actually insured for more than they're worth. $14,000 to be exact.
1: So Detective Sherwin is looking around and he's looking at the door, looking at windows, and he doesn't notice any sign of forced entry. And so he asks her, how do you think these burglars came in and how were they able to get these large and heavy items out of your home? And she just points to the window in her kitchen And, you know, she's like there. And this window is just a few feet wide. And he's sitting there like, what? Now, how did two – now, how did a two-door green refrigerator and a gold stove fit through a window half its size? But at this point, he doesn't say anything to her. He just kind of lets her talk and just keeps scribbling notes.
0: It does remind me of that joke, is your refrigerator running? Then you better go catch it. (laughs) But I don't think Detective Sherwin's in a joking mood. Actually, I think he's racking his brain because there is something about this Linda character that seems really familiar. He cannot quite place her, but feels he's met her before.
1: I will say, as far as police tactics go, I think this is a really smart one to use. It's like, don't ask any questions. Just let all of the lies come out, and you'll see a crack in the story eventually, So when Detective Sherwin leaves her apartment that day, he just knows something's up, right? His, like, gut is like, this woman isn't telling the truth. He thinks she's probably trying to commit insurance fraud. But again, there's something that just tells him that this isn't her first rodeo, and it's probably not going to be her last.
0: A few days later, Linda goes to the Naval Base Dental Clinic in North Chicago to get her teeth cleaned. Now, cinematically, this waiting room is filled with a bunch of Navy recruits, sailors, they're all kind of sitting there and then, huh? They look up and this woman swaggers in and they are all drawn to her.
1: Man after man steps up to the plate and they shoot their shot with her. They're like, hey, how are you? She's like, no, not you, not you. You know, all these guys coming up to her and she and I have a very similar life experience. So I I understand how she's feeling in this moment. And she's turning all these guys (laughs) down. Why are you laughing? Except for one This guy, Lamar Jones, he works at the dental clinic. He's 21 years old. He's hot. And just like everybody else, he's just really attracted to Linda. She looks like she's in her 30s. She's got her life together. He says she's got the smoothest skin he's ever seen. And she's draped in expensive furs. Again, same as me.
0: It's wild. (laughs) It's just like you. It's like they're describing you. It's It's like they're describing me. Truly. Lamar is the only one that she flirts with. She introduces herself as Linda Sholvia, And by the end of the day, Lamar is feeling great because he has scored a date with this hot older woman, and when they go out, he feels even better because it seems like this lady just has an endless supply of money. She drives luxury cars, hands out cash like it's nothing, and demands respect in every storefront and car dealership in town, and she gets it, you know? She is poised and well-educated. She even has a degree from a Caribbean university.
1: And even though Lamar never sees her go to work, he just assumes that this woman who has all this money is just trustworthy, because that makes sense. That's exactly how it works. And he's smitten by her. You know, she's charming. She's funny. She's beautiful. And after less than a week together, Linda Shulvia and Lamar Jones get married.
0: Back to Detective Jack Sherwin. He actually ends up returning to Linda Taylor's apartment the next day, on August 13, 1974. He's following up on that burglary report. But the woman who answers the door is almost unrecognizable. She looks a decade older than the woman he talked to the day before. She's not wearing any makeup, and in place of her nice clothes, she's got on a housecoat. The only thing that's the same is that gold tooth. It takes him a
1: moment to realize that this is the same woman, Linda Taylor, that he met the day prior. And so once he gets over the shock of this, he asks her to repeat her burglary story again, just so that he can double-check the details.
0: And she seems pretty annoyed that he's back, but she tells him the same story down to the elephant figurines. The details are the same, nothing is amiss, but he is still... Suspicious, So he asks for a glass of water, thinking he can pull her fingerprints from it. And then he's on his way.
1: When Detective Sherwin returns to the police headquarters, he sees his sergeant is there,
0: waiting for him. Not a good sign. Yep, Linda Taylor beat him to the punch. So she called as soon as he left her house. And she demands to speak to his superior and tells the sergeant she's being treated like a criminal instead of a victim, and that Detective Sherwin is obsessed with her. He's trying to ruin her life.
1: She's good. She like did Mm -hmm. the call your manager thing before any of us were doing it. My God, she's a woman ahead of her time. But while the sergeant has a hard time believing that a cop with more than a dozen years of exemplary service would do something like this, he sides with Linda Taylor. He tells Detective Sherwin to drop the case entirely and focus on clearing his ever-growing stack of reports. Who loves paperwork? Well, Linda does. This woman's case is low on the list of their priorities. He doubts that they'll ever be able to recover the missing items, so he should just drop
0: it. And while Detective Sherwin respects the chain of command, he feels certain his boss is wrong. Linda Taylor isn't a victim. Clearly, she just doesn't want the police poking around her apartment any more than necessary. So what he ends up doing is sending that water glass in with Linda's fingerprints, hoping that with a little luck, he will find a match and uncover what she's hiding.
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Quinn, are you ready for this next uh, bomb of information I'm about to drop on you? I think so. I feel ready. Okay. Lamar Jones, the guy who married a woman after knowing her for less than a week— would you believe yeah. it that he has no idea what he got into? Oh, no Would way. Would you believe it? <laughs> when he marries Linda Shulvia, it's just like, it's so shocked. I'm shocked. I'm shooketh. When he marries Linda Shulvia, he thinks he's marrying a beautiful 35-year-old Haitian woman. But after several nights together, one morning, Lamar wakes up before she does. And the woman next to him in bed is a little bit unrecognizable. He sees a woman that looks so much older than he realized. Her skin that was once smooth, it ain't smooth. It's covered in wrinkles. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's just expertly applied makeup.
0: This feels like a real oopsie moment. Um, it's like she needs to set that alarm early and head to the bathroom because Sweet, not she his realizes. oopsie moment.
1: It's her oopsie moment.
0: Yes, if you're going to wear that level of stage makeup that you look decades younger uh, and, you, and you're and you going to marry someone after knowing them for three or four days. <laughs> yes, that is her oopsie moment because you got to like get that costume on, girlfriend. She realizes that he has seen her without it. And so she runs to the bathroom for like an hour and comes back out with that beautiful, flawless face. She's missed out fire again. And I feel like just reading that, I felt like either I don't understand how makeup works or she has like some kind of special face iron because I don't know how you get those wrinkles out. Linda, tell me.
1: I don't know about you, but I would for sure want to watch the the YouTube version of her makeup tutorial. I would tune in. I'd be interested. Tell me your secrets, Linda. We're super interested over here. But it isn't just her looks that makes Lamar raise his eyebrows. Soon after their wed, Linda reveals that he is actually her eighth husband And funnily enough, she'd actually killed the first one by shooting him in the chest. This is great. I'm sure Lamar feels awesome about his life choices. Um, Another one of her husbands ended up dying um, in a bus accident because he was crushed to death while working for Greyhound. I think it's safe to assume that the honeymoon period has sufficiently ended for the two of them.
0: Yeah, I picture he like didn't do the dishes and she saw and was like, you know, I shot my first husband to death. (laughs) Just casually. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, another thing that catches Lamar's attention is the name on her university degree. It does not say Linda Scholvia; It says Linda Taylor. And nobody thinks about it. Whenever he's going to that mailbox, she sure does seem to get a lot of mail with a lot of different names on it. A lot of Hmm. different addresses being forwarded to her. But Linda's collecting it all like it is for her. It's like, it's like the week
1: together meant nothing. And all of these things that he knew about her are just crumbling. At this point, he's not even sure that she's a black woman. When he first met her, it seemed clear. But her light complexion allowed her to pass as white, Asian, or really whatever suited her for that day. So he's just like, who is this woman?
0: And. He's trying not to, I don't know, be bothered too much by these weird details. She is giving him a lot of money. She's got those great cars. She's giving him gifts. A thousand dollars here, a thousand dollars there. I mean, it's look, it's nice.
1: Yeah, but he knows okay? he's
0: being played. As
1: Lamar later put it, I met her because she was pretty and I was shooting game to her. I guess her game must have been stronger than mine because I met her that Monday and got married that Saturday. Linda. Tell me your secrets. (laughs) Here I am trying to get hitched. She did it in a week.
0: Wow. Better than me. Eight times. Detective Jack Sherwin. He's been waiting for those results to come back on that glass of Linda's that he got tested. He has to pretend, though, like that's not what he's doing. He's not thinking about it. Because remember, his boss is going to be pissed if he knows that he went, you know, right underneath his nose and did this anyway. Um, But he's excited. He wants these results back. He wants to see what he finds out.
1: And guess what? He gets lucky. The identification unit was able to salvage one clean print from Linda's glass. And it matches the fingerprints on an arrest intake form in Michigan, signed with the name... Connie
0: Green. And that is when it hits him. He knew that Linda Taylor looked familiar and he had met her before. She reported a burglary at her house on 78th Street two years ago, but her name was Connie back then. And as
1: he starts to go through her arrest history, Detective Sherwin realizes she has had way more than two names. She's likely had dozens, if not more. In 1944, she was arrested for prostitution. In February 1967, a woman by the name of Constance Wakefield, who we know is Connie, um, was charged with child endangerment. March 1967, Constance Womack, another name, but let's be clear, same woman, is charged with kidnapping. All of these incidents that he could find associated with her led to dismissed charges and Linda, or whoever the hell she is at this point, being sent home. She has had seven husbands, and she's wanted in Michigan
0: for felony welfare fraud. And he learned more about the specifics of her fraud. Connie Walker is a 40-year-old single mom of seven who's incapacitated by heart disease. She's earning nearly $500 a month from Illinois State Aid. Linda Bennett, same person, folks, is a 34-year-old single mom of four who lists her birthplace as Floridia.
1: (laughs) No, no error. That's what she's listed. That's what she Florida. said.
0: She gets $300 a month on disability. And her most recent request for public assistance was so preposterous that it had been denied. It was a woman by the name of Sandra Brownlee, supposedly the mother of seven, all under the age of five, who'd never worked or received public aid before. Detective
1: Sherwin feels vindicated. He is proven right. Linda Taylor is everything but a victim. She's a world-class con artist. And on August 25th, 1974, he drives with three other officers to Linda's apartment and knocks on her door.
0: She answers in her housecoat, waving them inside. And she does not bring up the fact that she reported Sherwin for harassment. She just cooperates like she always does.
1: Detective Sherwin sits down in the living room and cuts right through the bullshit. He tells her that he's there to arrest her.
0: And she actually, she takes the news surprisingly well for a woman on the lam. She just asks permission to go change clothes and get her affairs in order before they take her away. You know, she has kids. She needs to figure out some child care and the like. You know, go iron her wrinkles <laughs> out or whatever.
1: And this will sound like a familiar story because... Again, with all the names she used, Sherwin isn't quite sure what name to put on the police report. In her apartment, he finds driver's licenses and ID cards and welfare forms with
0: all different names on them. So he asks her what her real name is. And she just hems and haws. She really doesn't want to give him a straight answer. So finally, he just decides to write Linda Taylor on her intake form. It takes six police inventory forms to document. All of the IDs, forms, and certificates that they take out of this apartment.
1: Linda is booked and fingerprinted. But, (sighs) Taylor's old as time, she doesn't stay in jail for long. Within a few days, her new husband, Lamar Jones, bails her with the money she kept in a suitcase at her apartment. And before she faces any charges in court, wouldn't you know it, Linda Taylor disappears once again. Slippery little sucker.
0: And this is where things finally start to come together. In January of 1976, Linda Taylor becomes the most notorious fraudster in the United States. So much so that her deeds become the center of Ronald Reagan's campaign for president.
2: In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers... To collect food stamps, Social Security, veterans' benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare, her tax-free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a year.
1: The Chicago Tribune calls her the welfare queen, and she quickly becomes the poster woman for corruption in the social safety net. Breathless articles recount her dozens of scams, her eight husbands,
0: and her dozens of identities. Dr. Schfolia, daughter of the great Black Herman, Connie Green, mother of twins and triplets, Linda Sholvia, wife of Lamar Jones, Constance Jarvis and Linda Taylor, whose stolen fridge set off this whole saga. They are all the same person. They all own the same damn fridge. They're all the woman we named at the start of the episode, Martha Miller. Though you would never catch her using that name.
1: Even the newspapers don't use that name. As far as history is concerned, her name is in the books as Linda Taylor, not Martha Miller. And while it might seem that she's been caught in the act one too many times, she had one more scam in her before she faces consequences. And it's her worst scam yet.
0: In November of 1974, Patricia Parks is a 36-year-old Trinidadian school teacher in the midst of a divorce. Now, she and her soon-to-be ex, John Parks, have three kids, all under 10 years old. She tells the courts that John did not help with the medical bills, which were huge because she suffered from MS and kidney and bladder issues.
1: Patricia meets Linda Malexo at church. Now, Linda claims she is an African voodoo priestess, and knowing of Patricia's condition, Linda invites her to a seance, where during the seance, Linda informs Patricia that she is destined to die in the next six months. This is devastating news. But Linda promises to
0: change Patricia's fate. And Patricia desperately needs child care, and Linda needs a place to go So Linda moves into Patricia's house in Chicago and starts to watch her kids for her and also help care for Patricia herself.
1: And Linda is very quick to tend to Patricia as her condition declines. She draws her ice baths and she brews her potions. And these potions, you know, while they're not a traditional form of medicine, Patricia believes them to be good for her, right? I mean, it's her friend giving her these potions. None of the traditional doctors um, that she's seen has been able to help her in any way. So she's literally just doing anything that she can to help.
0: And as Patricia starts to get worse, Linda moves her into her daughter's bedroom, and the daughter moves into her sibling's room. Eventually, Linda actually takes Patricia's place in the primary bedroom.
1: And by April of 1975, Patricia has signed over the deed to her house to Linda, and has written her last will and testament, where she named the trustee of her entire estate as My Friend Linda.
0: And that is when things really take a turn for the worse, because the next month, Patricia checks in to South Shore Hospital. And from that hospital bed, she then changes the beneficiary of her life insurance policy from her ex-husband and her kids to just Linda. The witness listed on the form is Linda C. Jones. She changed the will. She changed the life insurance policy. And as you have probably guessed... That is not a recipe for staying alive.
1: And in June of 1975, Patricia Parks dies, leaving behind her three kids under 10 years old. And everything she has is transferred to the one person who stayed by her side through
0: it all, Linda. Patricia's ex-husband, John Parks, is pissed. He long suspected that Linda was a bad actor in this. His kids once told him that Linda had encouraged them to steal when they were out shopping with her. And she seemed to be getting more and more involved in his ex-wife's life. And it didn't feel right to him. And now with all this financial stuff changing hands, it just, his suspicions are confirmed She may have taken his wife, but he's going to be damned if she takes the house that he once shared with her.
1: When he knows that Linda would be out of the house at Patricia's Wake, John Parks enters the house. He changes the locks and he guards the home with a 12-gauge shotgun and two Dobermans. When Linda comes to, quote, her home, he refuses to let her in. He keeps refusing her for days. It is a standoff.
0: And eventually, the media catches wind of this wild story, and the Chicago Defender publishes a story entitled, House Under Siege by Many-Named Lady. And that article is what gets the police back on Linda's trail.
1: An autopsy of Patricia Parks reveals that her death was caused by an overdose of barbiturates, raising questions about whether Linda knowingly poisoned her friend. But ultimately prosecutors decided that they didn't have the time or the resources to investigate that crime. But I think it's worse than
0: that. I think they just didn't care enough to invest those resources. In the end, Linda Taylor, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and use her real name. Martha Miller finally faces her crimes in a court of law. And in 1977, years after delay, she now stands before a judge and jury accused of welfare fraud and perjury.
1: With all the evidence Detective Jack Sherwin collected, along with the evidence from her Michigan case, Martha Miller is convicted on both counts. And she's sentenced to a paltry two to six years in prison for welfare fraud and one year for perjury. But she only ends up serving three years.
0: Martha's history as the, quote, welfare queen becomes so potent that her infamous title is used in political ads and campaigns for decades to come. Ronald Reagan rides the wave of anger over welfare reform all the way to the White House in 1980. And you could argue the ensuing cuts to welfare programs are still being felt. You can draw a direct line from Martha Miller to the state of our social safety net today.
1: And regardless of where you stand on the case for or against social safety nets, Martha's crimes have had a huge lasting impact on welfare benefits for millions of Americans especially women of color who have been unfairly branded with the label welfare queen ever since.
0: What is important to note is, yes, Martha Miller exploited the system to her benefit. But doing that was illegal. That is not what welfare is designed for. But as an institution, welfare is what ended up taking the heat. The fact that she got away with
1: welfare fraud for so long wasn't so much an indictment of the welfare programs, but rather an indictment of the system that turned a blind eye to her crimes. Or perhaps a system that just doesn't have enough resources to investigate these to begin with.
0: Without Detective Jack Sherwin, who knows how much longer she would have been able to get away with it? And who knows how many more identities and states she would have bilked?
1: Millions know the myth of the welfare queen but few know the much more complicated truth of Martha
0: Miller's fraud. We didn't really get into it because what we were trying to tell you about this episode is Martha Miller's history as a con artist and what sort of landed her this title of welfare queen. But I did just want to point out that she was actually the worst and that What we didn't have a chance to tell you about was the children that she used in her money-making scheme because these were her kids, some of them. We don't know how many, but she used them all like props. And she was not a good mom, not even a decent mom. She just had this like gaggle of kids in tow trying to use them to score money in these frauds. And she was doing things like leaving them with strangers for years at a time. And they would say, where's my brother? Like, I miss him. And she'd say, oh, he's with grandparents. Don't worry about it. Not a caring mom. It's like truly the
1: worst of the worst. And I think like, yeah, the majority of the kids were hers, but like not all of them were. And I guarantee you if she didn't get busted after Patricia, she was going to parade her three kids under 10 around and try to get as many benefits through those kids as humanly possible as well. Oh, totally. do you know what I mean? She was, like,
0: they were then going to become, yeah, her new props to play with and to try to get more money. Exactly. We should backtrack to Patricia, to Patricia Parks, because the FBI was all over trying to figure out if this woman was stealing money, but they really didn't give a if she was a murderer because there was this middle-aged black woman that ended up dead and nobody cared to Mm -hmm. look into it. Nobody was there trying to figure out what happened.
1: Well, I think because Patricia was already dealing with disabilities, right? And so they just were like, uh, I get they just but she didn't have to die that soon. She did That's not, not have to. That's what she died die. of. She died exactly. of an overdose exactly. of barbiturates
0: and we know this voodoo priestess is making her smoothies. It doesn't look good and not only did the police not say we need to learn more, but the press who are uh, all too happy to write these stories about the welfare queen are not taking up the mantle of saying, "Hey, you know what's really interesting is this woman's death uh at the hands of this many-named woman. Like, yeah. we'll tell you about the house being under siege, but not this woman losing her life. And if they had done that, that might have put in pressure on the police
1: to cover that case, to invest the resources, to finding out, to actually bringing her to trial for murder. And maybe she would have gotten more than 3 Years. And I think it's important three to note years. that she left jail and she was in and out of trouble with the law ever since. It's not like these three years miraculously changed Martha Miller to be a caring mother who was being an honest truth teller. Absolutely no, not. No, she did not
0: leave after, tw- after those three years and say, wow, I learned my lesson.
1: Yeah, <laughs> she was a criminal and listen, I know we've like hit the hit it home quite a bit about the welfare system and how like this boogeyman title of the welfare queen is not an indictment of the system. It's an indictment of a criminal who manipulated the system and committed crimes. I just want to say I know someone who grew up on the welfare system and they were able to eat because of it and they were able to, you know, get out of that and provide for their family for the rest of their life after using this system that truly allowed them to eat and so i think it's important to note that like you know we do hear a lot of these like stories of fraudulent and stuff like that and it's very rare and far and few between that we hear the success stories of our social safety nets and i want to say i know firsthand who it affected and you know what it worked for them so moral of a story she didn't learn a lesson and she ended up dying in 2002 a long life honestly
0: I wonder if she saw it coming. I wonder if she did one of her classic uh, crystal ball readings and charged herself 100 bucks and stapled it to a wall and was like, <laughs> I've got till 2002 to cause some trouble. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing, because it just might be the case we talk about next.
1: We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful was the following, a book entitled The Queen by Josh Levin and reporting from George Bliss at the Chicago Tribune. If you'd like to learn more about this story,
0: we highly recommend you check them out. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins.
1: Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner And
0: Carrie Epema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.